0: Welcome to Micro. I'm Drew Hawkins, and this episode is part of an interview series for Miami Book Fair, where members of Team Micro—that's myself, Dylan Evers, May Kaufman, and Kirsten Renault—interview authors appearing at the fair about their work. For more information about their programming and to check out the incredible roster of authors appearing this year, visit miamibookfair.com, and be sure to follow them at Miami Book Fair and hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022 for more updates. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Micro. I'm Kirsten Renault, and today I'm speaking with writer, editor, and voice actor, Taja Aysen. We'll be talking about her new book, Some of My Best Friends, Essays on Lip Service, which was published earlier this year by OneSignal Publishers. To start the show, we've asked her to select and read a passage from the book. So here's Taja Eisen reading the opening
1: from her new collection, enjoy. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. Near the end of the first Toy Story film, an uprising takes place. The familiar conceit of the plot is that toys are conscious. They can think and talk, feel and plot revenge but no one is supposed to know. Every time a person walks into the room, the playthings flop to the ground, still, and glassy-eyed, and all, who me, about having free will. Their oppressor is a kid named Sid, who likes to take apart his store-bought toys and remake them into new ones. Seems harmless, maybe even anti-capitalist. But because Sid's creations involve dismembered dolls, and also because he has bad teeth, a skull T-shirt, and the basement pallor of an incel, We're meant to recognize that he's a creep. This is not a bright and curious child trying to minimize his carbon footprint. This is a sadist getting off on torture. The circumstances the toys decide are grave enough to break the cardinal rule and reveal their sentience. Leading the revolt is our hero, Sheriff Woody. Sid has Buzz Lightyear, Woody's rival turned bro, strapped to a rocket. He's about to light the fuse when Woody stages a distraction saying his action figure lines, though no one is pulling his string. Sid stops, frowns. The toy is all the way across the yard. The yard is empty. When he skulks over to Woody and picks him up, things turn personal. That's right. I'm talking to you, Sid Phillips. Sid's face contorts in panic as the other shoe drops. He hasn't been making cool alternative toys. He's been butchering living creatures. What happens next is straight out of a horror film, enough to terrify the kid I was in 1995. The army of toys closes in like they're about to rip sit apart, mutilated dolls rising from muddy puddles in a sandbox, lurching with outstretched arms, crying, Mama! This has already been pretty traumatic for the kid, but what truly breaks him is Woody's final demand. The sheriff rotates his head a cool 360 and says, in a voice that drips with threat, so play, nice. This scene is my favorite metaphor to describe what it's felt like over the past several years as corporations, public figures, and cultural industries became fluent in the language of social justice. A bunch of objects opening their mouths to declare a revolutionary consciousness. After this decade's uprisings against police violence, the wave of inclusion statements, high profile hires, and higher profile apologies meant that too many things were suddenly talking. Entities that should not, in any rational view of the world, have been able to speak at all, candy brands, emojis, style guides, road surfaces, the New York Times bestseller list, were suddenly animate, alive. They stroked my temples and chucked me under the chin, vowing that a new order was on its way, and what's more, that I was gonna like it. Sometimes, the noise making led to changes in systems and policies that have made them more equitable. Mostly, the noise was an end in itself, to prove its makers were in step with the times. And I'll stop there, thank you. Ah, wonderful, <laughs>
0: wonderful. <laughs> it's such a delight to have a voice actor read to you. <laughs> okay. it, was a, it was a delight to record my own audiobook. That was really cool. Oh, I bet it was a blast. Okay, so we'll see what Drew edits out and what he does here. But um, first, something I really enjoyed that really caught me um, throughout the book was just the sheer amount of like research and references. Mm. The bibliography, I think, is six, seven pages. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the process of research and incorporating those voices into your work and what that looks like for you?
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for that great question. I mean, I was really, the role of research was really important to me in this book because even though um, it's sort of opens keyed to a very recent moment, a moment that we all, you know, live through and kind of feels very near to us from the past few years. It was really important to me to show that so many of these conversations, whether it's race and animation or um, how we receive the work of black writers or, you know, how personal narrative gets talked about or, you know, the inequity of the publishing industry. It was so important to me to connect these to broader historical patterns. Um, So I, um, my, my process for kind of going into every essay was I would assemble a sort of almost a syllabus for myself, um, kind of, you know, what are the essential, <laughs> what, what do I, what are the essential texts on race and cartoons or on, um, you know, the, how the publishing industry works or Um, You know, other times that sometimes that canon was very kind of established. Like there are lots of academics who have done really amazing work on race and animation. Um, But other times for something like my essay about personal essays, um, assembling the canon was a little bit, a little looser, a little more like based on a conversation that's taken place on the internet over the past 10, 15 years. Um, But that was very much my process. It was like assemble the list, read everything. And then at the moment when I could sort of feel my ideas bubbling over with the contribution that I wanted to make to that conversation, that's how I knew I was ready to start writing. Um, So it all sort of grew very organically out of the research process.
0: That's wonderful. That makes it seem so digestible.
1: When I look Ah, at
0: (laughs) research, that's crazy. (laughs) Which brings (laughs) me, I really enjoyed the, this time is personal. Um, I, a current of the book that really caught me was this like concept of authenticity and the commercialization of pain. And especially as it applies to this question of writing about oneself and the editing and publishing process. So can you talk a little bit about how you balance the consideration of how you write about oneself while of course working on an essay collection about your own experiences?
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, So I think, I mean, when I kind of came of age as a writer on the internet, um, it was a little bit after the sort of peak of what's referred to as the personal essay boom when kind of the trend was for writers to kind of sensationalize the worst thing that had ever happened to them and like put it into 1200 words and get paid like 50 bucks for it and really kind of like exploit some really traumatic things that happened to them. Um, So even though sort of that moment wasn't quite as intense when I was when I was starting to pitch and place essays, there was still you could still sort of feel its legacy. Um, And I still like, especially as somebody who was kind of figuring out how I wanted to write about myself on the page, how I wanted to talk about myself and my experiences. I twinked pretty early that editors liked when I played up um, certain aspects of, for example, how hard it is supposedly to be a racialized person and how that subject position is like inherently difficult and painful. Um, and there was a moment where I was like, huh, if I do that, I'll get the byline. Interesting. Um, but then the more I started to do that, the more I realized I didn't feel very good. And I didn't feel, as you say, authentic to sort of who I was as a writer and like didn't feel faithful to the work I wanted to put in the world. Um, so um, then I honestly like retreated from uh, memoir for some time and coming back to it for this book. I think it was really about finding the right voice for the book. Um, It was a little bit about, um, you know, sometimes you put something on the page and you're like, "Mm, not comfortable sharing that, but more than a matter of degree, I think it was like, because the book is so interested in um, this pattern that I've observed in so many Areas of culture where, like, you know, different things suddenly started, um, you know, speaking in leftist language without backing that up with action, um, that provided a really useful lens for looking at my own experience and kind of showing me how much of the personal I wanted to let in. Um, and I think the just absurdity of that setup also helped me find the very, like, comic, um, accessible voice of the book.
0: Yeah, I wanted to make note of it. Um, it's like laugh out loud funny. Thank La- you, I'm so
1: glad, I'm so glad.
0: It's really funny, um, especially when, yeah, I just really, I really enjoyed how funny it was when you're handling um, such difficult topics and so much research, right? Yeah. So talking about voice, I wanted to ask you, um, what was the first essay from the collection that you actually wrote and how did it change over the process of shaping it into a whole book?
1: Um, yeah. So the, the first essay that I wrote was actually, um, it was Tiny White People. Um, other than that, the essays, other than Tiny White People and Hearing Voices, which I swapped for the final version, the essays appear in the book actually in the order in which I wrote them. Um, and I kind of came up with that order because I felt like, Um, It was like curating a playlist. I felt like it was a good mix of kind of personal and researched and um, varied at the length a little bit. And like, just, I I liked the pacing of it. Um, And and it's also kind of roughly organized um, chronologically. It kind of starts with me as a child starting to go out for cartoon auditions and ends with me um, as an adult leaving Canada to move to the US, which I just did like four months ago. Um, (laughs) So um, I started with Tiny White People, which was actually a really hard essay to start with because I had written a version of it before. Um, A previous version of it had been published online about five years ago. And I think going in, I thought I was going to be able to reuse more of that early version. I was like, oh, you know, I'll just sort of like build it out and like, add some more scenes. And, and I realized reapproaching it, that like my thinking had changed so dramatically. Um, And I think the first version of that essay was very invested in a certain kind of straightforward politics of representation. Like, oh, I just need to, you know, all we need is for more readers and writers of color to feel seen. And that's it. Um, And, you know, of course, now I'm sort of at a place where I'm suspicious of that kind of thinking, and especially the ways that it's been you know, when it is elevated as the be all and end all, um, the ways it can be used to obscure kind of the necessity of systemic change. Um, But, so that's the way that essay changed. It was really useful for finding the voice because um, it was one of the essays in the book where I feel like um, I could, I just, I, I saw the opportunity to make a lot of jokes. Um, And I knew that was something I wanted to be central to the voice of the book, in part just because that's kind of how I always approach the page, but also because I think so much of the stuff I'm writing about is, like, inherently absurd and ridiculous. And, like, it's funny when, like, the CIA puts out an ad talking about how committed they are to, like, diversity. Like, you just have to laugh because it's so obviously wrong. Um, And I really wanted the voice of the book to be faithful to that experience of like, 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 like what? <laughs> like, um, and, and I think too, I, I wanted to give the reader a sort of, I wanted to extend a hand to the reader. I wanted to take as a given that they've probably noticed these things in their lives too and give them a language for articulating it. And I wanted the reader to feel like my sort of co-conspirator and agreeing, isn't this, isn't this weird? um haven't you like you've seen this too right okay now what does it mean let's work that out together
0: yeah I thought something the book does really well and I really enjoyed about it is that it makes you feel smart while you're reading it which is always a great experience right you're like yeah I know about capitalism (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and so I thought that's done really well but I wanted to ask you um yeah how do you straddle that line between okay well surely you've heard about this and Mm -hmm. The possibility of okay, you have no idea where we're coming from here, and how mm-hmm. do you balance that sort of like offering of information while keeping that voice moving and the it flowing appropriately to where you're trying to take everyone?
1: Yeah, um, I think I I relied a lot on my on my editors and sort of trusted early readers to help me find that balance. Um, I think as a writer, I have a tendency probably to over explain. Um, and to equivocate a lot, I'd be like, well, you can think of it this way, but on the other hand, perhaps we want to consider it like this. Um, I, I remember I went to, uh, I heard Gia Tolentino speak um, when she was launching Trick Mirror, and she sort of described the way that she approaches writing about a problem or question as kind of, as if she's holding up something with many sort of faces or facets, like a, you know, something prismatic, like a diamond, just kind of slowly rotating it and examining it one surface at a time. And I was like, I totally identify with that. Um, But, you know, at the same time, if that's the way you think, it's really helpful to have people who are like, you know, you might, you know, it could move a little better here maybe tighten this up. We're getting a little too in the weeds with the research here. Um, So that that part, I think, was very much um, a combination of relying on other people and being a very rigorous self-editor, like I... I, 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 I put myself through the ringer revising this book because um, like my day job, I'm an editor. Um, so there was, you know, after I finished drafting, I took a little bit of time away from the book. Probably not as much time as I could or should have taken, <laughs> but um, approached it again like it was, you know, like it was somebody else's.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I feel like a lot of people that listen to the show, of course, are writers, usually, maybe not always have the editing experience. And of course, coming to your own book, your work as an editor, trying to like create that term of separation. Can you talk a little bit about how that felt and what that looked like for you?
1: Yeah, I... It seems hard. It it was hard. It It, it wasn't quite like okay, now I'm gonna put on that other hat that I wear during the day. Like it, it's it certainly what, as much as I tried to mimic that, you know, it was, it, it's very different when it's like your own baby. <laughs> um, so I guess I sort of, how did I, I'm trying to think if I have anything interesting to say about the revision process. Um, it's interesting. when I When I sent the first draft to my editors, the feedback I got and I think this is kind of interesting in light of some of the other stuff we've been talking about. They said, like, this is, you know, the research here is really good. The arguments are so strong, so clear, but we need more of you. Like, where are you in this in this book? Because I had pitched it as, you know, a pretty straightforward blend of memoir cultural criticism. And then I mm-hmm. delivered something that was weighted much more heavily on, <laughs> on the latter side mm-hmm. than the former. Um, so a lot of the revision process was figuring out, how much of myself I wanted to tease out here and um, I am a writer I think who tends to think more in argument than in scene um, so that was that was a fun challenge like sort of thinking more critically about memoir and you know coming out of like finishing the book I, it's a space that I'm very interested in going back to and a genre I want to explore more. Um, and there was this sort of, this this feeling that I kind of trained myself to write towards um, that, um, like I, I, in writing the personal stuff, I tried to reach for things that, like I wanted to articulate experiences that had long felt true to me, but I had never quite put words to. And anytime I hit one of those moments, I was like, okay, this is this is true, this is like, this is what we want the emotional sort of core of the book to feel like.
0: Yeah, there's um, a lot of emotional resonance when it is your personal experience. And it's so kindly backed up by the research and references um, mm-hmm. that they support each other. I thought it was- Thank really- you. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, so this is our final question. Thank you so much. Um, this is what I'm asking everyone. It's my favorite question because I'm the one who came up with it. Um, what were you reading while you were writing some of my best friends?
1: Oh, I love this question. Okay. Um, so I was <laughs> I was reading, in addition to like all of the stuff that I was reading for research, I was reading a lot of people whose um whose tones i wanted in my head um whose whether it was like clarity of argument for which i was reading lauren michelle jackson's white negroes um for humor um i was reading uh patricia lockwood's priest daddy um for scale and just like sort of marriage of personal and analysis i was reading I was rereading Trick Mirror also for the humor. um, And I was reading uh, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Um, I was dipping in and out of Toni Morrison again for like clarity of argument and just clarity of vision. Um, I had this whole stack of books that I just kept near me almost just for vibes, like so I could, you know, open it up, take in a few sentences. Um, But those were kind of my big. I started reading um, David Sedaris for the first time. I'd never read his work before, but I just like so loved the just levity and movement of those sentences that he was a helpful kind of tonal companion. Um, I have a, I, I took a photo actually of like, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> I, I know this is audio only. you gotta make
0: sure nobody's left out <laughs> yes
1: I, I want uh, I'll just read you all oh, right of course Samantha Irby huge huge like tonal referent um Zadie Smith Kathy Park Hong and Alexander Chi all just like really um really powerful essayists thinkers I really admire um so I guess a lot of essay collections um and memoir to kind of like, they were so helpful in finding the voice and finding just kind of, I feel like all of those thinkers or a lot of those thinkers are really, um, really light on their feet. Like, even if there is somebody like Zadie Smith, those essays can like span so much um, research material, argumentative material, and she just kind of like skates across the surface of it in a way that looks so effortless. Um, so, yes
0: wonderful I love the idea of like keeping them nearby just like you know for the vibe yeah Otherwise, like osmosis. Like, <laughs> you have, like crystals you have like 17 books whatever. exactly <laughs> <laughs> okay let me do my um exit point and then I love it if we could take a screenshot with our little books together um totally great so be sure to stop by and see Taja Ison at Miami Book Fair November 13th through 20th in beautiful Miami Florida And pick up a copy of her debut book, Some of My Best Friends, Essays on Lip Service, available today. Kaja Isom, thank you so much for stopping by.
1: Thank you. This was such a lovely
0: conversation.